Bandwidth for this podcast is brought to you by CashFly at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com. This Week in Photography is sponsored by Audible. Go to audiblepodcast.com slash twip for a free downloadable book. This week on TWIP, new Nikon glass rumors, smart clothes that take photos, and a print-on-demand discussion with special guest star Rick Smolin. All that and more coming up next on episode number 98 of This Week in Photography. And we're back for another episode of This Week in Photography. I'm your host, Frederick Van Johnson. We've got a really interesting show lined up for you guys today and uh, some really interesting characters co-hosting on the show with me, first of which is none other than Mr. Steve Simon coming to us live from the Caffeine Shack in New York City. Hey, Steve. This is going to be a good show. You know, some shows I don't really have that feeling, but this one I do. You have a good feeling. You have a good feeling about it because all the caffeine you've ingested from the Starbucks. I think you're that in. is part of the reason. It's just me, but I feel good, and uh, let's get on with it. Yeah, let's get on with it because you're gonna at some point you're gonna have to get rid of that Starbucks. And uh, hey, Steve, are you are you sitting in Starbucks or are you working at Starbucks? Um, gosh, that's yes. A good, good, Designation, yeah, I think yes would be the best answer here. A little bit of both. And then, you're not behind the counter. <laughs> oh, is he oh, no, working? No, no. Oh. I see. Okay, no, I do not work. I, but I'm hopeful that when they get to my application, maybe something will happen. <laughs> Times are tough. And that it's other voice tough. that you heard was Mr. Ron Brinkman. Hey, Ron. Hello, everybody. All right. So we, we have a quorum, and it is time to kick off into the show. Um, you know, before I do that, I wanted to give a nod to our sponsor, Audible.com. They're the Internet's leading provider of spoken word entertainment. If you're interested in snagging your free audiobook um, of your choice, by the way, head over to audiblepodcast.com slash twip. And let's jump into the news. So, you know, guys, uh, at the top of the news today is... This week in photography. So I wanted to talk a little bit about our absence and sort of our iffiness over the past, I say, two two to three weeks. So just want to give a nod that to folks that we know that the, the show has been less consistent than it has been for the past, I don't know, how many years have we been on? Two years, 18 months or so? 12 years, I think. 12 years, it. yeah. So over the last two weeks, um, it got a little, we hit some rough water there in terms of logistics. We tried some experiments with uh, getting, doing a live feed of the show on video uh, from the Twit Cottage up there with Leo Laporte and crew. They graciously allowed us to do that, but uh it was it, it proved to be a challenge as I wrote on the blog post on twiplog.com that it's it was a challenge getting the files from there to where they needed to get to for post production during a live show because they're they're I live. They told me that I wasn't pretty enough for video. Well, there's that you know, and it was the rotoscoping oh. trying to get you out of the frames and all that. So, gotcha. so regardless, just wanted to give a nod to that. Uh, I think we're back on track now. Uh, essentially, what we're going to do going forward is twip as usual. So what you're what you're listening to now is what we're going to do for the for the foreseeable future. We may try to once we get our, our get the logistics worked out uh we may go back to video again but right now we're going to do what works and that's audio only you guys cool with that 
Now that I've put it out there and made it definitive, I'm like, oh, can I, can I get a vote? <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, I, you know, there, there's uh, certainly we have no problem with doing video stuff once we get the logistics worked out, but we don't want it to impact the, the real thrust of the show, which is making sure we get a podcast out on a regular schedule. So, yep. you know, the video's fun for the people that wanted to tune in and, and see our ugly mugs actually talking about this stuff. But <laughs> until we can work it out to where it's... Uh, streamlined process that doesn't impact getting the show out on time. We're gonna. Yeah, it feels uh, good to feels good to let myself go again too because yeah. uh, <laughs> it's a lot of work preparing for those video things. You, hair let, and you let let your hair down and I exactly mean, one hair. <laughs> yeah, don't have to wear pants anyway. Let's let's moving on, on. Moving on. There's a couple of interesting things in the news. Uh, lots of interesting things in the news that we got we need to get into. The first of which, uh, Steve, you you just added this to our wiki. I wanted to talk about this at the top. There's some new rumors coming out about some hardware coming from our friends at Nikon. What do you yes, what sorry. are they and what do you think about it? Well, I think I think it's inevitable. I mean, look, Nikon is obviously committed to the full frame format and uh, the rumors we speak of are some prime sweet lenses. Uh, one is a 25 1.4 the other is a 35 1.4, which years ago I had its manual predecessor. Mm-hmm. And, of course, the, the 70 to 200 2.8, which we hear a lot of uh, whining about it, vignetting in the corners. I mean, it's a, it's a beautiful lens. Um, but when they add, a little, add those nano-crystal magic to these new lenses, um, it's going to be fantastic. So, yeah, I think these ultimately are going to come out. I hope they come out sooner than later. I'm definitely going to sort of line up uh, uh, to, to get at least one of those fast, wide lenses. Uh, yeah. The 35 to 14 is, uh, that was a beautiful, I, I like that focal length. I liked it in the film days, and uh, I would love to have that lens for sure. Oh, no, can you imagine that on a, on a D3 or D700 body? That'd be insane. My goodness, yeah, so, that would be so fantastic. This is interesting because I hadn't actually looked at this, the link you provided until just now. I thought this was, there was a link that came out just a day or two ago that was supposedly the entire product roadmap for Nikon over the next couple of days that was leaked. Yeah. And I thought that's, that's what you guys were talking about, but um, I'm wondering if this is from that same document or this looks like it's almost something different that may kind of confirm is, what was this in is the different. document. This is different. Yeah, yeah, it is different. It is different. Match that roadmap, I, know that. I mean... Yeah, I think that roadmap, um, I mean, you know, it, it, uh, I think any of us, well, those of us that shoot Nikon, Ron, would probably be able to write that roadmap. I mean, there was well, no yeah, that's, that is the thing that's, yeah, so you never we know. know there's going to be innovation, new models are going to be improved, and we've seen the track record. But, uh, but this is something, because the, the schematics of these lenses are posted, um, looks to be uh, maybe, if, they're, if they prove to be true, um, uh, more imminent than, than some of the other stuff. So, yeah, it'd be uh, fantastic. More ways to spend our money. Absolutely. Not to belabor the point about the 70 to 200, but I have that lens and I love that lens, but you know, it does vignette. And, uh, you know, which makes me not love it so much when I have to either correct the vignetting or. You know, tell people that I meant to do that. So. Yeah, but you you have that eighteen sixty six look to your digital technology. That's yeah, that's kind of cool. Okay, well, if, if that's your signature look, <laughs> <laughs> if that's your signature, then I have a lens for you if you're interested. So when this one comes out, I will sell you mine. <laughs> 
Gotcha, gotcha. And by the way, you know, just so you guys have noticed probably that the prices certainly have been creeping up. And I know, you know, the 7200 came out years and years ago, and I think initially it was X amount of dollars. And I believe now it's about 1800 or $1,900. So mm-hmm. I think, um, you know, the used prices are, are going to be okay um, in terms of uh, selling the old Nikon stuff just because, sadly, the prices keep sneaking up on us. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But, you know, it's an investment. And people like you, Steve, that are that are making their living from photography, you absorb this cost. You just jack up your prices by $2,000 in a job and you're good, right? Absolutely, absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> and they pay for your lens. Also in the news, um, uh, LPA Designs has released a firmware update for Pocket Wizard, the Pocket Wizard uh, Mini TT1 and the Flex TT5, their sender and receiver units that are uh, TTL, wireless TTL. Um, using radio signals. And we talked about in the show a while ago that uh, there were lots of reports that the uh, initial release, there were some problems with the, with it actually working as advertised. And uh, hopefully this firmware update addresses some of that stuff, at least in the notes it says it does. Steve, uh, what do you think about that? Is it, uh, from yeah, what you read, well, I know you don't have one, but from what you, re- yeah. what you read, do you, you think it's, uh, it's ready for prime time? Well, I, I really hope so because, you know, there was great uh, hope and promise with these new uh, TTL version pocket wizards, both, you know, obviously in the Canon camp, but Nikon, um, they're supposed to introduce Nikon versions uh, after this. But um, from what I understood, there were all kinds of problems initially with these Canon units. So I hope they get that uh, under control. And I think maybe in some ways it'll be good for the Nikon people that wait because they're going to, you know, iron out some of these problems. But uh, to have have a radio TTL CLS uh, wireless flash system is going to be a fantastic thing. Yeah, that's the holy grail. I, well, one of the holy grails in terms of off-camera strobe to be able to not be limited either by line of sight or physical obstruction and place your, your strobes wherever you want. That's uh, That opens yeah, up doors. Yeah, I've been frustrated. I don't know about you guys, but I have been frustrated in the CLS system at times. And I know it's limitations, but I've, you know, for instance, a couple of weeks ago, I set up in a fairly large kind of a banquet room. And though I did have a line of sight, I guess I was just a little bit out of range, um, albeit I didn't use the uh, SU-800. I had a, an SB-900 as my commander. But a couple of times it would fire, sometimes it wouldn't. And, you know, the radio unit would certainly take care of any uh, inconsistency there. So I'm definitely looking forward to that. It sure seems like this technology is the kind of thing that should be bulletproof at this point. I mean, you know, maybe that's naive, but boy, it, it... it, this kind of, you know, we're sitting, we're talking over a Skype connection. We've got our cell phones. I mean, all those things are reasonably well-defined for how to send signals through the air. You would think that a, a local kind of a scenario shouldn't be that hard. Yeah. I got, to, I got to Starbucks in my flying car. I mean, you know, exactly. you would think. That, you didn't anyway. take the jetpack? No, no, no. It's the summertime. It's a convertible flying car. Hey, Steve, okay. you're in New York City. You're lucky you made it from your apartment to Starbucks. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> By the way, guys, I am looking. I have line of sight to the Apple Store on 14th Street here. So. Uh oh! And it's calling you, yep. a giant finger. It, it always does. Over. It always does. Also in the news, uh, Fujifilm uh, is is talking about releasing a real. I'm holding up quote fingers. A real 3D camera in September. It's going to cost around 600 bucks. Um, I, speaking you know, of flying cars. Speaking yeah. of flying cars, and also, you know, I want to know what this real 3D means because. 
in my mind, a 3D object means I can either spin it around in 3D space and look at it from all angles or walk around it in 3D space and look at it. Uh, this sounds more like 2D or stereo. Brink, Ron Brinkman, what do you think about that? Well, I don't. Uh, I should look at this because real 3D, the term real 3D is actually a brand name in the film industry for a process for uh, projecting digital imagery. You know, the, when you go see uh, whatever, uh, you know, Pixar's Up or something in Steady, real, real 3D is, is a process there. I don't know if this is related to that or not. Hmm. Um, you know, it looks to me, I'm just looking at the what's set up there, though. It does look like a... Uh, it's like a, a stereo camera. Kind of, like the, yeah, the, it's a stereo camera. I, yeah, so I just, I don't know if that real 3D is just some marketing thing or a brand name or something, but, you know, it's just, I mean, and there's certainly nothing new to have these stereo cameras. They've been around forever. Yeah. Uh, the trick with all this is, how do you look at it? You know, it's not about taking the picture so much as it's, then how do you yeah. view it? Right. Uh, and, I, and I have a question for you, Ron. Go ahead. Yeah. Finish your thought. Well, I was just going to uh, say, they're making a pretty big bet here with, with this... Uh, with this thing where they're not just going to be selling the camera, they're going to be providing some uh, capabilities of generating prints that use those kind of lenticular lenses or, you know, lenticular viewing oh, right. device. You can see it in 3D, which is kind of gimmicky. And I, you know, so I, I think the big problem here is just sort of, yeah. You know, there's not a good method yet for viewing stereo images. So you're really, you know, talk about a scenario where you're buying into, you know, get the razor and pay exorbitant amounts for the razor blades, or the the printer scenario where the printers are cheap but the the ink costs so much. This is the same kind of thing where you'd be buying into something yeah. where it may cost you so much more to produce these prints that it's you know going to be yeah, dramatic. Maybe, and then uh, you're going to be able to there's... show these to a to a limited audience as well. I mean, the whole yeah. the whole magic of the 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 new sort of digital photography is that I can shoot an image today do some stuff to throw it online and get a bunch of comments and feedback on it tomorrow if we're going the other direction where okay now i need proprietary hardware and i gotta make these physical terrestrial atom-based prints and and show yeah. a limited audience is it really worth it for me for the 12 maybe, people that are going to see it Maybe there's an opening now. I mean, we've seen the sort of collapse of the instant picture market, and, you know, there isn't really anything like this. So, you know, they're the first on the block with a kind of a 3D um, image, at least at this time. So, you know, maybe there's enough of a market there that uh, people will uh, support this thing. But I was going to ask Ron, because I remember 20 years ago, I interviewed this guy in Montreal, and he was sort of on the forefront of holography. And they talked about how holograms, which are kind of a 3D film-based um, process was sort of the future in photography. And, you know, there are examples of it, and it kind of looks cool. But how come this hasn't happened? Why did it never take off, do you think? Uh, you know, it's it, it definitely has been around for quite a while. And I think it's, it's just a combination of uh, the, the sort of painfulness of the process and the, the cost to do it. You know, to, to make these holograms still required a pretty involved process and you've got to have you know these lasers to project them properly and so i think it's just not gotten there yet it seems to me like what's going to get there sooner is some variant of what you see in the theaters where you wear you put on these polarized glasses uh, and your television is capable of doing that you can buy televisions right now i think it's I want to say Samsung, but I'm not sure, um, produces LCD TVs that mm -hmm. uh, can drive 
the the shutter, the 3D glasses, you know, this, the polarized glasses, uh, and view stereo content. So I think you're going to start to see it. And all these movies are starting to be done in this format. So naturally, you're going to start seeing it hitting the home theaters as well. So it is about on the crux of where you're going to start to be able to view these things in 3D. But I, you know, my guess is that we're still a few a few years away from it being common. It just surprises me, though, that, you know, this technology did not require any special glasses. You didn't have to look kind of goofy in those glasses, and you could see it from, you know, wherever your, your, your proper viewing distance is. And that was like 20 years ago. And you'd think that if that technology did have promise, which why wouldn't it? Um, it just never, it never really progressed from that, you know? It's, anyway, we'll yeah, leave it there. It's a good I just point. Thought, I mean, it's, although they don't, you know, they never looked that great. It was very dependent on getting the right kind of light into that or having an extremely controlled lighting environment. You know, you have to be in a dark room to see it yeah. well. So I'm not sure. It's I still remember that, that hologram as, as you walk, you know, the girl winks at you. And, mm-hmm. you know, that doesn't happen to me in real life, so I remember that hologram very well. It's very cool technology, what, what, what can be done with that stuff. So, well, anyway, if there wait. are any holograms, holographers out there, let us know. Would it be holographers or holographers? Holographers, yeah. <laughs> That's probably it. All right, so speaking of cool and interesting technology, uh, have you guys, did you guys see the article about smart clothes or the clothes that can detect the wavelength? Of uh, awesome. or the light wavelength, um, and sort of respond to it, Brinkman. I know, awesome. I know you're reading this and like salivating. What do you think? Well, you know, this well, first of all, what is it? What is it? So it's it's they've come up with uh, who was it that did this? Uh, MIT, I think. Yes, some guys at MIT came up with this kind of an interesting scenario where they have this fabric that can detect the the wavelength and the direction of the light that falls on it uh, and and record this. And the thinking being that you know you can put together effectively a camera sensor uh, that is made of you know threads these smart threads inside of a fabric uh, and then of course presumably there's a heck of a lot of processing behind the scenes that goes on to really generate an image that is usable but i i totally can see this kind of thing starting to really take off because it's you know once you when these sensors are getting very cheap for detecting light and the more importantly the back end the computing part of it uh, is getting much smarter and cheaper so it's going to be feasible to have this just so many different scenarios where you have uh, unobtrusive or even invisible cameras that can record your environment. Well, so, I mean, you think you think there's privacy concerns now? Just wait. Well, speaking Hang of on, invisible, my, my ass is taking a picture. Hang on a second. <laughs> okay, yeah. got it. Yeah, yeah make sure the, my smart jeans. <laughs> yeah, thank, thanks for that, Steve. I needed that visual <laughs> on my, in my brain. But speaking of Sorry. invisibility, you know, I always had this. I was always thinking if somebody could create a fabric or a surface that could respond to the light around it. Like, for example, it, it, could it be possible in the future to ha- to make a jacket or something or a ninja suit out of this stuff? Uh, it's and not then in the stand, future. They've and, got it now. But in stand in front of a building and then blend into the building, thereby sort of creating invisibility. They, so they have it now. You can... Wow. Google it. Google an invisible cloak or something like that, and you'll see some really? some research projects that have been done in the last couple of years. And, you know, they don't look great, but, you know, it shows a guy in a jacket that uh, is revealing the scene in front of him, sort of through, if you will, the jacket. And obviously it's not anywhere near like a Predator cloak yet. Yeah, or, Harry, or Harry Potter, right? Yeah, or, or yeah, even, even the Harry Potter. I mean, it's, you know, it's closer to the Predator kind of cloak where you get a distortion field going yeah. with it. Um but no, I mean, there's 
there's already stuff like that out there, and it's it's crude, but but you can clearly see that it's going to be possible. And yeah, I think this I mean, this type of technology with the embedded in the threads is just another step in that direction. But you know, it's, it's all a matter of figuring how do you map the light that's coming in to the light that's coming out so that it's coherent. I can see that being a boon. Yeah, it, military applications notwithstanding, but for just photojournalists like you, Steve, you know, being able to. It, it maybe not be invisible in a scene, but blend more easily, you know, or yeah. or uh, avian photographers like Scott Bourne, you know, going in the bushes and blending into the trees around him with with the camera. Yeah. That would be amazing. I mean, I if I want to blend in, I wear my black leotard outfit. But uh, <laughs> I suppose you know it may have its advantages. But I mean, I, that's a bit of a stretch because you're still going to be there. You're still going to have your camera. Maybe it's going to make some noise. But you know, I look at this stuff and and it just boggles my mind. I mean, the the minds that are able to sort of create this, and I, I don't want to forget, you know, the minds that are creating all this amazing technology that we're taking advantage of as photographers. I mean, it really is pretty amazing to think of how far we've come yeah yeah but you know the naysayers will say it's too much technology and you know you're using technology to influence the image which is akin to digital manipulation if you're wearing that jacket when you're shooting so <laughs> you, can't, you can't do that speaking speaking of digital manipulation did you see that uh, the, the latest person to get caught uh, doing digital manipulation on the it was the new york times oh no no just... do tell well, it, I mean, it wasn't the time it, it? it. No, this, but this was some big feature in the New York Times. I think it was New York Times uh, magazine. And there was a photo essay from a photographer named uh, Edgar Martins. And, you know, it went up on the on the website. And then I think it was Metafilter. Somebody at Metafilter started talking about it, saying, you know, there's something fishy about these images, you know, like architecture images or something. And they, they went and started looking at them more closely. And it was very obvious that pieces of the imagery had been cloned and pasted. And, and that's, yeah, you know, typical and it was kind of readers. Stuff. It was readers that alerted the New York Times to this. And, you know, again, I mean, you know, I teach an ethics class in documentary photography, and it's just never worth risking your reputation. I mean, you know, this photographer, for whatever reasons, needed to say that none of these photos were digitally manipulated, which ultimately was a lie. And to recover from that, especially in such a high-profile and respected place, forget the New York Times newspaper, but the magazine is is something that in the photography world with Kathy Ryan at the helm, it's got to be an embarrassment for, for, for her. And um, it's going to hurt the photographer, I'm, I'm sure. It, it's not worth it. Yeah. I mean, the this, this stuff is what it is. And if you're going to alter it, it's still the image is there. Uh, you know, they're beautiful images. And uh, why why risk it? Yeah, you know there there are. This is really kind of a, an interesting point for magazine editors. There are tools out there now that can sort of algorithmically go through, look at an image, and sort of flag. Um, in particular, the case of cloning, you know, can just like there's look right here on this image. There is something that's obviously been cloned from another area. So it's not too hard to determine this. I, I know that it's a workflow issue. You probably couldn't put every single photo you published through a tool like this, or if you did, it would take, you know, it would change your, your workflow quite a bit. But I really believe that it's going to become critical in the, in the next year or two that 
you know, magazines are going to have to do this sort of thing. Newspapers are going to have to do this sort of thing and, and just run a if basic sanity check on it. Well, yeah, or whatever the equivalent is. But running sanity check on these images, you know, there's, there's a good business uh, out there probably for yeah, somebody who offers totally. this as a service. Totally. I mean, I, I think it needs to be there right now because already, you know, what, it's for the last 20 years or so, people have not been trusting images and even before, you know, and yeah. now like, we talk about on the show all the time about digital, manip digital manipulation and all that. I think... Uh, on the far right side of images being a record of the event that was happening at that time, there needs to be a way to stamp that image and say that this is exactly as it was out of the camera or this is the delta, you know, between what it was and what we changed or something like that so that people can trust it. Otherwise, it's, you know, you're not going to trust anything. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you know, Cartier Bresson used to stamp his images on the back, do not crop. And, you know, people would respect that. And uh, that was sort of my transition, Fred, into that Cartier Bresson piece that you kind of skipped. That was that brilliant. I thought was interesting. That was brilliant. <laughs> I was going to get back to that. But before you get into that, Steve, I want to give another okay. nod to our sponsor, uh, which again is Audible. We're brought to you by Audible.com. They're the leading provider in spoken word entertainment. They've got over 50,000 titles to choose from, and that can be downloaded and played back pretty much anywhere you want. And uh, if you want to try that out, head over to audiblepodcast.com slash twip and download the free or a free book of your choice. And I know uh, Mr. Ron Brinkman is knee deep in, in one of their titles right now. Which one is that, Ron? I am indeed. I'm, uh, you know, I'm, I'm. This is my standard. Uh, keep myself sane while I do a bike ride scenario these days. Is pick a good novel and dive into it, and ignore the pain of uh, trying to exercise. <laughs> and uh, right now, I'm I'm reading a book called The City in the City, by an author named China Mieville. Uh, I've read some of his stuff before. He's he's mainly, I guess you'd call it a fantasy writer. He writes this very bizarre there's a genre called the new weird that's out there where it's not you know it's not fantasy in the sense of elves and orcs and dragons and all that kind of stuff but more like an urban fantasy where just stuff is kind of i don't even know how to describe it it's just weird it's just strange and you know it doesn't quite follow the laws of physics or reality and this is a little bit of a departure. This city in the city is more of a hard-boiled detective mystery, and I'm I'm only about a third of the way into it. So I'm, it has this setup that is sort of fantastic, but not necessarily impossible in the sense that there's these two cities that are uh, take up the same, you know, basic place, sort of like a, a divided city like Berlin was. Only it's sort of all intermingled, and the inhabitants have been forced to not see the stuff that's happening in the other city. So it's very bizarre. But um, excellent writer and a really excellent reader on this one, too. A reader by the name of, uh, hang on, John Lee, yeah. who I was looking at what he's done, and, and it's, uh, he's done a lot of classics and that kind of thing. But he's just, it, you know, when you get these good readers that are capable of putting a, a voice to the different characters, just using very subtle changes in accent and, and tonality and, and reading, it's just it's amazing how much it brings things to life. Isn't it interesting how, how audiobooks... Uh, as opposed to you know regular paper-based books or on the Kindle, um, you kind of put your own voice in the 
when you're reading it. So you have your own narrative going on and the difference between my lame narrative in my head and somebody who's a professional reading it gives you so much more color and depth to the book, I think, while you're just sitting there sort of absorbing it. I'm still trying to draw, connect those synapses between, you know, I've been reading all my life and turning pages and looking at this and, you know, kind of put dog earring pages and listening to it on my iPhone and having a sort of a passive experience. And I kind of like the passive experience better. I don't know. What do you, it, uh, it's, it's a different thing. And, I, and you know, I mean, I was kind of against the whole concept for a while because I'm such a lifelong reader. And But now that I've started doing it, you know, I wouldn't do it. I don't, I don't know. I mean, I, I'm not saying I wouldn't do it for every book, but it is it, it's, it's an equally interesting experience, I guess is how I'd phrase it. it. It is a slightly different thing, but it's very rewarding. I guess that's kind of the bottom line is if you're, if you're reading something for, for enjoyment, you know, you can easily get as much enjoyment, I think, out of listening to the audio version as, as reading it. It's, it. it's different in areas, and certainly, you know, it's a matter of your own voice versus some other voices created. But on the other hand, you know, sometimes that's nice, and, and uh, I'm, I'm definitely into it. So Yeah. Well, if you want to get into it and uh, download a free audiobook of your choice, head over to audiblepodcast.com slash twip. And Steve, I, I know you're sitting at the edge of your Starbucks seat right now <laughs> <laughs> wanting to talk about Henry Cartier-Bresson. You want to you wanna jump into that? Yeah, well, I'll just uh, tell the readers. I just found out about this. I don't know if Aaron or whoever put it on the, the wiki that we use uh, for news. But um, the headline is, Red Faces in Paris as Destroyed, in quotation marks, Cartier-Bresson Snaps Resurface. Well, to call a Cartier-Bresson a snap is maybe a little bit of an insult. But, you know, arguably, probably one of the most uh, influential photographers ever, Cartier-Bresson, donated 551 of his images to the French government uh, in 1955 and 1970. And then, in 1991, there was some seriously flooding in this place that they were stored, and the, the, the prints were seriously damaged. So, reluctantly, you know, after Cartier-Bresson looked at uh, the images, they decided that they were going to destroy them. And so they, they destroyed them, or so he thought, but they're starting to come up on the market, these so-called destroyed images. So the, the French government is a little bit embarrassed by that. And just so you know the value, um, a Cartier-Bresson print that he had created himself uh, sold recently at auction in New York for over a quarter of a million dollars. And we're talking a donation of 551 vintage prints. So it's a little bit embarrassing for all concerned. Yeah. Well, I don't know. Well, we'll have links to all that stuff in the show notes if folks yeah. want to dive Have in. you guys ever like made prints and then if it's not to your liking... Have you decided to, I'm just going to tear it up? Or do you save your sort of second prints? I destroy mine. They're, they're gone. Yeah. Generally, yeah. It's hard Unless... to destroy them sometimes, though, don't you think? No, no, because <laughs> what's the alternative? Put them in a box? And no, I don't want people to see my, my bad stuff. I, I want people to yeah, think I whenever I release, even online, you know, whenever I release anything, yeah. it was just like, oh, yeah, I did that. It was easy, you know, even though I spent 5, 10, 20 hours doing it. You know, you don't want them to see This your... is a lesson. A lesson to TWIP listeners out there. If you don't want people to see the prints that you're not happy with, get rid of them. Yeah, Because don't show they them. may surface. Show your best work. You learn don't, that day don't send one. Them to the French, don't send them to the French government. <laughs> yeah, don't send them to the French government. Exactly. Destroy them. 
<laughs> All right. Uh, so let's let's jump into our photo assignment and current poll. So we don't have a poll posted at this time. So what I'd like to do is open it up to the listeners. And if you could head over to twiplog.com and in the show notes for this episode, post some ideas of what you think a poll should be or what we would, you know, kind of topics that you would like us to poll the uh, the TWIP listener audience about, things that you'd like to know. And we will queue those up and put them in. So head over to twiplog.com and submit now or forever hold your peace. With that, we'll jump into today's guest. He's a guy that goes by the name of Rick Smolin. Uh, he uh, runs a company called Against All Odds Productions. We ha- we've had him on Twip before. Great guest. Um, he's right now in the midst of just launching a new book project that relies heavily on print-on-demand services in regard to documenting and personalizing uh, Barack Obama's ascent to the presidency. So give it a listen. I'm here with Rick Smolin. He's a, a very prominent photographer. If you haven't heard his name, then uh, you may have been in a cave or something somewhere because Rick has worked on some really impressive and high-profile projects. Uh, he's a photojournalist that uh, that pretty much just throws himself into it and, and documents things that are important to what's happening in the world today. And this, the latest thing, of course, that's at the top of everyone's mind is the the elections, the uh, the Obama being elected to president of the United States. And he put together a very interesting project that involved on-demand publishing and on-demand printing. So I uh, invited him on the show and he graciously accepted to come tell the This Week in Photography audience about that project and how he put it together. So uh, thanks for coming on the show, Rick. Nice to be here, Frederick. Uh, always a pleasure to have you on. You're a longtime guest on the show, and uh, it's always a pleasure to, to chat with you about what you're working on. So specifically this time, it's the Obama project. So on demand, what talk to me, talk to me about the project overall and, and why you pulled it together. Sure. Well, let, let me explain a little bit about what it is. The book is called The Obama Time Capsule, and it's basically a really interesting recap of what happened over the last couple of years and basically how Obama ended up getting to the White House as seen through the eyes of some of the best photographers in the world. But the twist on it is that every single copy of the book is different. So we actually personalize and print the book one at a time. Uh, every single copy is personalized. And we weave together uh, each individual book buyer's photographs, their name, dedication to their children. Uh, there's an invitation to attend the inauguration inside the book. So it's sort of adding yourself to the pages of history. Um, j- just to give you a little background on where this concept of the Obama time capsule came from, I was sitting with a group of friends last fall uh, on, on election eve. And at just at the moment they announced that Obama had won, uh, quite a few of the people in the room who were not professional photographers picked up their camera and took a picture of the television set. And I, I was sort of amused and said, what are you guys doing? And people kind of sheepishly looked around at each other started laughing. And, and as we all talked, it was very obvious that everybody in the room felt that they had done something to help get Obama to the White House. They'd taken a week off of work. They'd driven to Nevada and knocked on the doors of strangers. They'd gone to a move-on call party. They wrote big checks. They called their mothers and said, Mom, you got to vote. Um, and I thought, you know, wouldn't it be interesting if you could do a book that sort of reflected that connection that people had to this president, this election, this time yeah. in American history? And that, that was sort of the origins of the book. Yeah, so kind of kind of to say that hey, I was there and I I helped shape the direction of this country. 
Right. So, so the book has two very well, several different very strong things. First of all, I called my many of my photographer friends who had been on the campaign trail working for Time or Newsweek or the New York Times, and I said, "Do you guys have pictures that no one ever saw, or that were only published once, or didn't illustrate that day's news event, but they're great pictures?" Yeah. So I got forty thousand photographs from my friends. Um, the, and, and of course, you know the fun part is looking through all those pictures and then in weaving them into an interesting narrative. Then I, I reached out to people like Arianna Huffington and Joe Klein, who wrote Primary Colors, and Colin Powell, and even Obama's sister, and I invited them to submit commentary essays, sort of talking about what it was like, what was going on, what they you know, how did Colin Powell decide to uh, to back uh, Obama instead of his 25-year-long friendship with McCain? Yeah, um, and then we invited. Nigel Holmes, who's an incredible infographics designer, to take all these really fascinating statistics and add them as well. So um, when you turn the pages of this, of this book, you kind of relive what happened, but but in a really interesting sort of condensed way. I, it's my favorite book of all the ones I've ever worked on. I, my team and I are the people that created the Day in the Life books and yep. uh, America 24-7. So I, I've done a lot of books, but I have to tell you, the Obama time capsule is by far the most fun of anything I've ever worked on. So this, is, this represents the first time that you've done the on-demand publishing thing in a book, correct? Yeah, I did a little book last fall uh, working with a company called Blurb that does really beautiful books. And that sort of planted part of the seed for this. Um, I just thought that, you know, the way the publishing industry works today is kind of nuts. I mean, they print hundreds of thousands of books. And then at the end of every year, 60% of all the books that are that are produced in the United States are destroyed, unsold. So just environmentally, economically, there's so many reasons why this idea that you order a book and then the book is created for you when you want it, instead of trying to guess in advance how many people are going to order it, makes so much more sense. Um, we, we reached out to Hewlett-Packard that makes this Indigo Press. It's, the, it's, the, the, it's sort of the printing press of the future. Yeah. And, and we went to them and said, look, we want to do this book. Right now, print on demand is actually pretty expensive. If you've made a Blurb book or Lulu or any of the other companies out there that do these books, you know, they're, they're beautiful, but they're pretty costly. So um, HP agreed to underwrite the project, give us the resources to do it. There's a really cool company called uh, New Page that actually donated, not gave, not not sold us, but donated 25 tons of paper. Wow. Uh, we, we went to Amazon, uh, Google, and Facebook, and Glam, and AOL all gave us advertising. People just fell in love with the idea of this Obama time capsule because, Frederick, the idea here is to sort of create the book of the future 10 years before it, it's possible. I mean, I, I have no doubt. Everybody I talk to in publishing says that the way all books, the way that we produce the Obama time capsule, is the way that all books will be done. Some somewhere between five and ten years from now, we're just we're just sort of ahead of the curve at the moment. Well, then, then if that's the case, talk a little bit about quality because I know you're a, you're a stickler for quality as most photographers are. So when you when what what are the quality deltas or differences between going with an on-demand published book versus one that you'd buy from Barnes and Noble today? Well, you know, I actually thought we'd have to make some compromises. I just assumed that the reproduction simply wouldn't be there. But it, it was kind of the opposite. I mean, the ability to print the book, look at it, and say, oh, you know, uh, the, the right side of this girl's face is a little bit dark. Let's lighten that up and then print the whole book again. Uh, we, we had an incredible design team. Michael Rylander is a wonderful designer who's done a lot of um, a Apple's advertising. So he designed the book. And then a fellow named Peter Truskier, who's like the world's leading color expert, went in. And we, so we, every single image, we were able to open up the shadows, bring down the highlights, brighten the image, change color casts. And so we had a, a degree of control over the finished product that I've never had when I printed my books overseas. 
Yeah. And 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 that quality that you see today with the on-demand version. So if I order one of these books, uh, that quality compared to one that I would go grab off the shelf, you you think that's comparable? I think they're pretty indistinguishable now. Um, you know, I, if any of your listeners are interested, um, the, if they go to our website, they, there's a little sort of a, you can actually turn the pages of the book and get a look at this. Uh, our website is www.theobamatimecapsule.com. Mm-hmm. Uh, the book should cost about $65. That's actually the list price of the book. But because of all these donations and because of the generosity of this paper company and HP, uh, the book is, th- is right now, it's $34.95. That's the introductory price. So it's a fantastic price. And, and, and again, just to explain what it is. So your name appears as one of the three authors on the cover of the Obama, Obama time capsule. Your name appears on the title page. Uh, your name is engraved on an invitation to attend the inauguration. Wow! There, there's there's a page of uh, celebrities, you know, Oprah Winfrey and Tiger Woods and George Clooney and Sean Penn, and your photograph, which you upload, is on that page with your name along, listed with all the other key Obama supporters. Uh, your picture of you and your family are, is on the back cover of the book, and there's a I don't know if you got this message, but the night that Obama was elected, there was a really um, there was a, an email that I got. It said. Uh, you know, dear Rick, uh, you know, I'm about to walk on stage here in Chicago, yep. but I want to thank you and all the other Americans that made tonight possible. So we actually have a BlackBerry, a photograph of a BlackBerry, and there on the BlackBerry is a message addressed to Frederick or whoever is buying the book. It's really cool. It, it's, uh, you know, we were trying to do it in a way that wasn't cheesy, but it was really fun. And I have a six-year-old and a nine-year-old, and, and I've made books for both of them because I want them to see what they look like, what they did. There, there's even a page in the book where you can put your own children's artwork. So, you know, my kids in elementary school, all the teachers had the kids do artwork about the election. So now your kids' artwork can also be featured in the book. It's really it's really fun. That is that is the future. I, I have no doubt that on-demand publishing, you know, the publishers of today are, are either going to retool to allow that sort of thing or, you know, something's going to happen overall. But the, the one thing that I wonder about uh, is cost. From a photographer's perspective, you if I if I say I go with publisher A and you know you go the traditional route you get a, an advance and you you write the book or you create the book and then you get your your percentage or your royalties on mm-hmm. top of the sales going forward all that changes with on demand but is it more expensive or do you get paid less in the end because it's more expensive to print these things on demand? Well, you can look at it two ways. One is I didn't need a publisher at all. Now, the publishers yeah. publishers sell the books to the bookstore for 100% markup. So, for example, a $50 coffee table book, the publisher charges Barnes & Noble $25 for that book. Well, in this case, I'm selling directly to the public. So I could either be greedy and sell it for $50, or in this case, because I want a lot of people to, to, to buy this book, um, we're selling it for $34.95. We're making about a dollar a book. Um, we didn't do this to make a lot of money. We did it just because we wanted to be the first ones in history to do a best-selling print-on-demand book. Yeah. But but you know, in terms of Frederick, in terms of you as a photographer, um, it it's actually getting to be pretty affordable now for a publisher for a photographer to not have to be at the mercy of a publisher saying, well, do I really want to give this guy a fifty thousand dollar advance? Because right now, as long as you've got the photographs and you have a good designer, you can design the book yourself. And if you're good at publicity, if there's a market, if people are are hungry for the topic that your book is about, you can basically self-publish the book. And and that's our goal here is to say to people, look, you know, Rick and Jennifer and their team at at Against All Odds self-published 
the Obama time capsule and look how well it did without needing a publisher to put up a lot of money and without needing to double the price of it, which is what most publishers have to do to make it viable for them. So I, I really do think for us as photographers, it's giving us much more control over the final product and eventually it'll be more profitable. I mean, right now, as I said, this book is sort of the, the first of it, of it, what I hope will be a whole series of books. Yeah. So the the tech, the on-demand technology overall, you know, taking out the the whole variables of being able to put yourself into the book. But, so you're just you're just creating a, you know, I'm holding a quote fingers, the dumb book that's just your stuff in it with no customization. Uh if you were going if a photographer was going to do that on a per job basis, say he's a wedding photographer or something, he wanted to create that stuff, create a book for his clients. Is sure. it is it cost effective to do that or are we talking only when you want to do gigantic runs where 500 or more people are going to be purchasing the book? Well, no, that's what's interesting is that basically you can you – know, every one of our books is – there's no – it doesn't cost us any more or any less if we did 500 copies or one. Once you've got the book done, once you're happy with it, you just press print and you're, you know, you're the, the printer that you – whoever you work your deal out with prints a copy for you. For wedding photographers, it's great because instead of it just being you know, pictures, you know, giving your client loose pictures in a box, you know, giving them a book that stays on their coffee table that shows other – you know, uh, potential, you know, couples, hey, this is a great photographer. Uh, I really think it's it's the way of the future. I also think, you know, I go to soccer games or birthday parties with my little kids, and the fact that I can then give the family or the, the class or the team a book about themselves instead of just saying, here's a here's a packet of prints, which end up sitting in a shoebox like with all the other packets of prints. Yeah. I think all, all of us are now growing up with this idea of narrative, of storytelling. Yep. And, you know, if you're a photographer and you go to your kid's soccer match, there's the pregame warm-up, there's the kids playing, there's the kid that's crying, there's the, the little, you know, the, the snacks afterwards. So if you just simply tell the story in order, it's so much more impressive and exciting for the family than, than just, you know, sending the print. So um, I, I am totally smitten with this idea of print-on-demand. And um, anyone in your listening audience who's, who's interested in learning more about it, um, as I said, you know, it's www.theobamatimecapsule.com. We also have a Facebook page up, which is Obama Time Capsule. It's a fan page where we've put videos. Uh, Charlie Gibson from ABC News had a wonderful video piece, and CNN did, did coverage. I mean, everyone's been sort of excited about this idea of adding yourself to the pages of history. Um, when, when, I, when I was growing up, my mother kept a book about JFK and she used to put our report cards and our you know class photos and she would use them sort of in between the pages of the book and I, I she's 87 now and I said mom you know in some ways you inspired the Obama time capsule because I'm doing the exact same thing with this book except in this case you are literally inside every you know your family and your kids are inside this little you know piece of American history yeah yeah that's great and that whole the whole narrative thing you were talking about in terms of you know, capturing cap, capturing the beginning, the middle, and the end of event of an event. That's the uh, that's the photojournalist in you coming. <laughs> oh yeah, definitely. I mean, you know, there's there's six chapters in the Obama time capsule, and the first is you know, it's the inauguration because that's what we all remember. But then it goes back onto the campaign trail, and it shows, you know, the how at first no one knew who he was. He was walking up to complete strangers at picket fences and walking into banks to shake hands. There's a picture of him walking down the street. You know, here's Obama walking down the street in Moscow. Three years ago, and not a single person recognized him. Yeah. And now he's like one of the most recognized people on the planet. Now, you know, even if you didn't vote for Obama, there's no question this is an historic time in American history. I mean, I think, 
you know, this this guy's got so many, you know, things on his plate. There's so many challenges and so many, you know, obstacles. But, you know, there's probably never been anybody in a position with more problems to solve or more potential to make a real difference. And I think that's what makes this time so interesting for, for all of us. So, Rick, any any plans to get President Obama a personalized book of his inauguration? Yeah, it's funny. I actually went to the White House two weeks ago not to see him, but to see uh, Pete Souza, who is his personal photographer. Yeah. And I, and I left, I left a, a copy of the book with Pete. Um, who told me that the way to get it to Obama, even though Pete is with him all day long, is to give it to Reggie. Uh, because normally when someone gives something to Obama, he gives it to Reggie. So if Reggie gives it to him, it's actually more likely for them to look at it. Um, yeah. uh, you know, it, Everybody in the world wants you know, 10 seconds of this guy's attention. So we are, we are trying very hard to get him a book. Uh, one of the ways we're doing it is sending copies of it to all of his staff. Uh, but I, I, I'm, I, I would love to hear their, their reactions to it because I think – I think even if the even if the Obama time capsule wasn't a print-on-demand or customized book, uh, you know our goal was to create the best book about his journey to the White House, and then on top of it was the icing of adding your own name and, and kids' photos and and your whole family to this to this book. Well, then I'm curious. So if if you're you're planning on sending a copy of it to to the members of of his administration. Uh, and this is a customizable book. Are you sending them a link that says, hey, go here and customize your own book for free? Or are yeah, you sending them that, physical that's books? A, that's a great question. That's exactly what we're doing. We have an email uh, with a, we have, you know, unique, they're like one-time use links. Mm-hmm. And so you, you click on it, it takes you to the website. And then it says, oh, hi, you've been given a free copy of the Obama Time Capsule. Just give us your name. You know, it takes about four or five minutes to upload your pictures. And you're, you can even dedicate the book to your wife or your kids or your parents. And there's a wonderful picture of Beyonce, uh, sort of with her arms stretched out, sort of welcoming the Obamas at one of the balls. Yeah. And and that's where you write your introduction. And uh, I, I just I love the pictures in the book. I love the writing. Um, I think everything about it is, you know, we we as I said, we've done probably about 60 books over the years, and uh, we had kids in sleeping bags on on the floor in our office for two months working on this because everybody wanted to be part of it. Yeah, Obama you know, is a very inspiring. Everything about the story, you know, makes you think that the impossible is possible. And I think, uh, you know, it's it's our little way of wanting to feel connected to it by doing the book. And I think it, the audience that we're aiming at are people who felt they made a difference, that they helped Obama get to the White House, and that you know he couldn't have done it without each of us. Yep. So then, uh, once this project is is. It sort of kicked out of the nest. What's next on the list of things that uh, that Rick Smolin's going to tackle? Well, it's funny, you know, Frederick. Last time I was on your show, I was talking about a book we had just done called "America at Home," where uh, we send 100 photographers around the United States for a week to con- to sort of capture what what the word home means to people. Yeah, uh, really, really interesting book. We also did a book, uh, same thing in in, uh, in England. So the next thing we're looking at is doing China at home, where we're trying to see if we could get something like 10 million people all over China to to pull out their cameras in addition to our professional photographers and try to make this the largest interactive photography event in, in, in human history. Excellent. Um, as opposed to dog or cat history. Um, <laughs> So the next project we're looking at is uh, a project called China at Home. You know, after having done America at Home and UK at Home, we thought we would uh, make it even more difficult for ourselves. And the goal is to see if we could get 10 million people all over China the same week 
to join our hundred photographers in capturing this concept of home. You know, we have this. I'm an adrenaline junkie, and uh, I like being scared. And if you like being scared, <laughs> doing doing a huge project in China in one week with you know ten thousand, ten million people is definitely going to be a challenge. And maybe we'll even add some customization elements to it. I suspect we will because you know, each of these projects becomes kind of iterative that way. So yeah, um, it's an evolution on the one before it, right? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Wow. So, Rick, thanks so much for taking the time to chat with me uh, this evening. What? Uh, where can people, again, repeat the URL where they can go find out more about the book and, and customize their own book? Absolutely. So the, the URL is www.theobamatimecapsule.com. Um, and there's a cool little video on there that gives you a sense of what the book's about. There's actually a little tutorial as well. Um, and then you go over to Amazon if you're interested, in, and there's actually um, uh, more information and reviews. And uh, basically, you buy the book at Amazon. Amazon sends you a little link. You go to our website. It takes you about four minutes. And it's a book that your friends, your family, your wife, your husband, uh, your parents just never forget. As I said, I, I think it's like the ultimate personalized gift. Excellent. And then uh, aside from the book, where can people and, and photographers and listeners go to find out more about you? Well, uh, good question. Um, <laughs> uh, there's, a, there's a Wikipedia entry on Rick Smolan. It's S-M-O-L-A-N. Um, and we also have a fan page that's up for the Obama Time Capsule on Facebook. And on Facebook, it's just Obama Time Capsule. Our website is The Obama Time Capsule, just to confuse everybody. Um, and, um, you know, basically, uh, uh, you know, Amazon carries lots of our books, The Day in the Life books, America 24-7. Yep. Um, it, you know, I, I, first of all, Frederick, I also just want to tell you, I, I love your show. I listen to every single episode. I learn something every time I listen. And uh, you guys really provide a great service to both professional photographers and aspiring photographers. Uh, I wish you guys were on several uh, times a week instead of just once. <laughs> Thanks a lot. I, I really appreciate that. Uh, sure. Thank you for having me on the show. Okay. Thanks a lot. And uh, good luck with the sales in the book and with the next project, China at Home. I'm going to be looking out for that. Cool. Thank you. Okay. And that was Rick Smolin. Uh, again, he's uh, the guy behind Against All Odds Productions. That's the company, if you haven't heard of them, that's the company that's behind the Day in the Life series of books, which if you haven't seen any of those, I don't know where you've been if you're a photographer, but they're everywhere. So if you want to learn more about Rick's latest project, head over to uh, the twiplog.com and we'll have links to all of the, uh, to his book and to create your own book and all sorts of stuff. So head over there and check it out. And with that, we'll jump into listener questions. The first question is for Mr. Ron Brinkman. Ron, take it away. Sure. This is from listener Lucas McIntosh. And he says, I recently switched my point and shoot from a Canon PowerShot G9 to an SD790IS. Oh. Uh, which I don't quite know what that is. He says, yes, Fred, I like the G9, but it's too big to put in my pocket. Yeah. But his question is, I know that one of the problems inevitably tied to cramming 10-plus megapixels on a small, compact camera sensor is heat generation and the subsequent digital noise that goes along with that. I noticed this on my G9 when using it as the maximum resolution. And my question is this. If I reduce the setting to, for example, 6 megapixels, will this alleviate the problem? Does changing the setting, the resolution setting actually turn off pixels, uh, reducing the digital noise generation? Um, I'm pretty sure the answer to that is no. I really would be surprised if they're really turning off pixels. I'm sure what they're doing is just averaging it down. And the only reason to do this 
uh, setting that to a lower resolution is purely for a, a space consideration uh, or you just don't want to fill up your card with as much stuff if you know you're not going to be using these prints for or using these images for, for, for making prints but I don't you know if, if they really were turning off every other pixel you would be introducing a whole lot of uh, artifacting I think in the image you, get the, you know you're, you're because you've got the space between the sensors as well that's coming in so it's not set up to just change where the light falls based on that you're not getting i guess the bottom line is you're not getting the advantage of a lower megapixel count where you would have larger sensors to correspond and that's really where that difference in the noise comes from so yeah you know you, you, may, you may feel like there's a little bit less noise in there just because sampling it down either in the computer or as a post process will alleviate some of that but it's nothing that you're really getting by doing it in the in the uh camera itself versus doing it as a post process. And what do you, what are you shooting as your point and shoot, Ron? I have the the Panasonic Lumix, the uh, LX3, uh which, you know, is is good low light performance. They didn't go crazy with the megapixels. Uh I still quite like it. It's um you know, it it's got its disadvantages as well, but uh particularly the lack of a really good long, you know, or even a slightly long zoom on it's the biggest thing that I run into a lot, but yeah. And I do wish it was a little bit smaller too. And Steve, you uh, your point and shoot is the D three, right? <laughs> exactly. Yeah, I, I have that. I think it makes my ass look big when I have it in my back pocket. But uh, I would say yeah, that you're compens my... you're compensating for something. <laughs> I got to stop talking about my ass this show. I brought it up several Please. times. I apologize yes, to our listeners. I'm gonna put that in the intro to the show because <laughs> you, you, I think this what Special Ron guest. Ron this was like the seventh time that Steve brought up his. Uh, <laughs> There's a bit of an obsession there. <laughs> I don't know what's going on. It's all about Starbucks over there. Uh, I want to throw this next question over to you. Um, it was It's about shooting raw. You want to dive into it? Uh, question is from, from Molly D. Uh, and she says, why am I so scared to shoot raw? I'm a new get off newspaper photographer and shooting weddings and freelance. And he says she's never shot raw while shooting for the newspaper. And she knows she need to, but she'd like to try. Uh, it's like trying to a new developer for film. She's terrified that could go wrong and so she'll somehow lose the photos and lose the client and lose reputation. Yeah. So her question is really, you know, as far as reliability, et cetera, will, will my photos be as safe on my card as they are when written in JPEG? Uh, she says, I know I can shoot raw plus JPEG, but it takes up a lot of room and at some point I need to remove the training wheels, i.e. JPEG. So she says, can you assuage my, my fears about raw? Yeah, I mean, I don't, there, there's nothing really technically different in terms of the data path for raw versus jpeg in fact and, and you could pr probably make the case that um the shooting raw is safer than shooting jpeg because yeah. jpeg actually goes through a second translation step so if something would go wrong with your camera it's more likely that it would happen in the uh the process of converting the jpeg so if anything i'd say shooting raw is a safer way to go than shooting jpeg yeah yeah and, and i talked to lots of photographers uh wedding photographers etc who definitely still shoot jpeg but it's interesting because people equate raw like you're saying ron people equate raw with being more complex and harder when in fact it's like you know going out with a safety net on you because you have much more latitude and you have much more power to recover uh poorly exposed images than you would with jpeg jpeg is more akin to shooting slide film whereas raw is like shooting negative where you have much more latitude and pulling a decent image out of it 
Now, Steve, Steve Simon's back on the line. Steve, we were talking about Raw versus JPEG uh, from uh, yeah, listener Yeah, I heard you guys, day. and I, th- I think you really covered it. And it is interesting that uh, there is that uh, misconception, um, I guess, you know, perpetrated by the fact that Raw is so amazingly comprehensive in terms of what you can do with it versus a JPEG. But the reality is you're, you're much better off having a Raw file than a JPEG in terms of flexibility, uh, future uh, advances in post-processing software. You can, you'll have all that information there. The only downside is it takes up a little bit more room. Um, maybe uh, you require a slightly faster computer, but you know computers now can handle it, as can all these great post-processing tools. So do not be afraid of the RAW. Embrace the RAW. Yeah, and <laughs> speaking of embracing, Steve, I'm gonna let you embrace this next question. Uh, you can. It's from Gabe Chai, so go ahead and dive in. Oh yeah, uh, Manhattan Henge. I don't know if you guys have heard about that, but there's one time a year, one day a year, when the streets of Manhattan line up perfectly. And I don't know if it's all the streets, but certain streets line up perfectly with uh, the setting of the sun. So you can photograph sort of the sun setting and the long sort of um, street that goes cross town in New York. And uh, Gabe was wondering um, if there's anything special he should do, any special technique, lens, or filter he should use. It's, it's akin to shooting any kind of sunset picture. Um, chances are, if you're going to include the sun in your image, um, your meter, even a good matrix-type metering system, um, is going to tend to see the sun and want to um, underexpose a little bit. So if anything, if you're shooting raw and you're on automatic, for example, I might just um, give it a little more exposure, use the exposure compensation dial, maybe put it to an extra plus two-thirds of a stop, and you should be fine with the latitude that raw gives you. If you want to be sure, you can bracket um, if you're not used to doing this kind of photography, but uh, it's it's not going to be uh, that difficult to get a really cool shot. But you're going to have to wait till next year because uh, Manhattan Henge has passed. Yeah, well, keep an eye out for that. Where can where do you know where people go to learn about that or to to keep track of the dates and all that, Steve? Is there a place online or is it just um, something you got to know? Yeah, I think uh, you could probably sort of Google it. I, I really have no idea. But, oh, there's uh, that Google It's often thing. mentioned. When you're in New York, you'll hear about it before it happens. Okay. But, yeah, it, it is the same day every year. The, the sun's oh, path okay. are reasonably gotcha. uh, predictable, I would think. All right. Cool. And the, the last question here I want to throw to Ron uh, because he is the – he is the uh, the bit person that would be able to answer this question, and I really want to know the answer to it. So, someone Daniel in Berlin wants to uh, know what the difference is, essentially, what the difference between fourteen bit raw and twelve bit raw is. But you go ahead and take yeah, it away, Ron. Yeah, he specifically he says he's about to replace uh, his Leica DLX three with a DSLR, and he says he's he's getting fourteen bit raw files from his point and shoot. And he's really wondering, you know, the camera he's considering, I guess, is, uh, says it has a 12-bit RAW files. He's wondering if those are actually inferior to the 14-bit counterparts. Uh, you know, technically, it's less data to work with. But does it really matter in the real world? And the answer is, is it probably doesn't. It's very unlikely that you would see a difference. Um, you know, you want that extra bit depth in there. Certainly, if your sensor is capable of capturing it, why would you throw it away? But the net net is that, uh, in, the, in most cases, you know, where that... Where that shows up is kind of at the extremes. So if you're uh, if you're 
doing heavy photo manipulation on an image uh, that you may start to see differences between a 12-bit and a 14-bit image. You may start to see some banding, but I'm talking, you know, really like dropping a photo down by several stops of brightness, you know, which is kind of getting to where the edge of what your raw file can do anyway, or more, more typically boosting the brightness up in the shadows, for instance, to bring out, to try and bring out some details. You will theoretically get a little more detail in the shadows and the, in the 14-bit scenario, but you know, a lot of that again is is where the noise shows up anyway. So having a bit of extra uh, granularity to measure the noise you see in your blacks is not necessarily going to do you that much good. So yeah. I mean, it, it's never bad to have the extra bit depth, but I suspect that 99, you know, plus percent of the time, uh, if you compared a 14-bit to a 12-bit file and, and weren't doing radical photo manipulations on it, you're not going to see any kind of a difference. Yeah, but just a difference in file size on your hard disk, right? Exactly, yep. Yeah. All right, let's move into the picks of the week. Uh, Steve, I know you have an uh, interesting food-related pick of the week. You want to jump into it? Or do you? Is that your pick? No. Mine's a food I, my, oh, that was yeah. yours, Ron. Oh, you, you put that long, non-shortened URL in there. <laughs> Go ahead, Ron. Ron, what's your uh, what's your food related pick of the week? Well, this one just made me laugh. I uh, uh, I was looking for a pick, and I just twittered out to everybody for suggestions on this. And this is from Twitter listener, uh, Twitter follower Jamie underscore F, uh, and he pointed me to uh, it was an article in, in the UK newspaper the Telegraph, but it showcased the food art by Carl Warner, photographer Carl Warner. And uh, what he does is he takes actual food items and builds these landscapes out of them. And they're pretty hilarious. I mean, you've got, you know, trees made out of broccoli and, and scenes inside of a cave where the stalactites are made out of carrots. And there's mountains with, from loaves of bread in the distance. And, mm. and the thing that's particularly interesting is this uh, some of the ocean escape uh, city makes where the water is made out of everything from cabbage leaves to these silvery fish. Uh, to this is one that uses smoked salmon for this wonderful sunset sunset lighting kind of a, a scene. <laughs> so it's uh, it's pretty amusing. They're we'll amazing. Those, they're they're, yeah, really they're great. Cool. There's, there's like 15 of them in there. We'll put the link in the show notes. I encourage everybody to go take a look at it. I mean, it's obviously a combination of shooting, being very smart about shooting the individual elements, and then probably putting a, a fair bit of time in Photoshop to put it together. But they're very creative, and it's the kind of thing where you first glance it looks like it's uh, a regular sort of a, a landscape, and then you realize that everything in there is made out of bread or something. <laughs> so that that is my, my primary pick of the week. I also wanted to call one out. Uh, I don't generally like to pick things that I haven't used, but this one was kind of interesting to me just because I want to support this kind of stuff, which is uh, there's a third-party tethering app for Nikons. This was recommended by a Twitter follower, Full Metal Photographer. Nice. And um, uh, it's, what's it called? It's actually called... So Fort Build. I don't quite know what that means, but it's tethered shooting on your Mac for the Nikon. We'll put the show links to it. And I, like I said, mostly just to encourage more of these third-party applications for doing uh, tethering and, and tethered shooting on uh, on your computer. Just because I think there's a lot of room for improvement with what comes with the cameras for these things. Yeah, I've used uh, Aperture to tether my Nikon to my Mac, and that worked really, really well. Have you guys done any tethered shooting? I, just a little playing around with it, um, but never, never anything on a real project or any, you know, even a self-assigned project. So, no, not yeah, yet. Yeah, I've done some. It's, I did a lot of stuff for my for my book where uh, I, you know, was shooting a lot of real studio photography, and particularly, you know, I was talking about different 
certain how changes in the camera can can give different visual effects and that kind of thing. And uh, it's really handy to have a tethered camera sitting on a nice good tripod where. Uh, you know, you can you have the big monitor there, really see what's going on and control it. And you know, if you're just doing things like showing the difference between, you know, what a different f-stop gives you, so it's a very handy thing to have. Yeah, it's also cool for demonstrations or for teaching purposes. If you want to kind of demonstrate different lighting techniques, for example, and you can flash it on the big screen if you have a bit of an audience. So yeah. it's kind of cool for that too. Yep. So Steve, what's what's your pick? Well, I was uh, a little inspired by you, Fred, because I know you picked a book, and uh, so I picked a book, too, because <laughs> I want to be just like Fred. And the book that I picked is called The Life of a Photograph by Sam Abel. And uh, Sam Abel is an amazing National Geographic photographer. I was fortunate enough uh, to take a workshop with him at one point in my life uh, many years ago. Um, but he's a very kind of wise and thoughtful photographer. He's worked for National Geographic his entire career. He's actually one of, I believe, the only still staff photographers, or was, uh, for the Geographic. And in this book, he, he talks about the life of a photograph, and he talks about things like composition and in a way that I think um, listeners could really benefit from, in a way you can understand and use in your own photography. So um, it's a beautiful book, and I, I would uh, highly advise uh, people take a look at it. Very cool. And my pick quickly is a book that just came out from, uh, from the publisher Peach Pit Press. It's called Beyond Digital Photography or Transforming Photos into Fine Art with Photoshop and Painter. And I picked this book uh, <clears throat> because A, it just came out, and B, because we talk a lot about digital manipulation, or at least I do, about digital manipulation and where is the line. And this, this book uh, is firmly on the other side of the line and sort of goes into the when you actually snap the picture it is the raw material for what the final result is going to be and they it's a beautiful book it goes into in depth on how to wield photoshop and its painterly type features and uh, meld them with with painter and uh, create some really stunning pieces of art that uh, you could print and hang on the wall so definitely check it out we'll put a link to the to the book's page in the show notes and uh, give it a give it a quick look if you are into that sort of thing and uh, the tip of the week, um, I actually have a tip, but I wanted to I wanted to throw it to you guys to see if you guys have a tip that you wanted to insert here before I talk about mine. Ron, go for it. Nope, I have no tips. All right, Steve, you have a tip. Um, okay. See again, you you put us on the spot like that. Phil. All right. While you're thinking, I'm um, going to throw mine. In rehearsal, in there. <laughs> there was no tip. Here's but, my uh, here's my tip. My tip is, um, and this is specifically because I'm doing this photo walk uh, this weekend, the Scott Kelby Worldwide Photo Walk uh, this this Saturday, the 18th, I believe it is. Um, uh, when you're, this is related to people that do photo walks and enjoy that sort of thing. And lots of what I've noticed on the photo walks that I've led, people tend to take pictures of objects and not so much approach people. You know, so it's you, you get out there and you'll you'll hang out with a bunch of photographers and then you go take pictures of you know some brickwork or a neon sign or something like that. But there's a lot of other people you know and not so much the other photographers but like for example i'm leading a photo walk in san francisco's chinatown 
it's going to be full of people. So an interesting looking people. So my suggestion would be to step outside of your comfort zone if you're doing some stuff like that and try to interact with people and and get them to let you photograph them. And one tip in doing that is to put the camera down when you first approach them. Don't run up to them and snap a photo in their <laughs> face. Put the camera down and walk up to them and have a, Yeah, have a have a conversation with the person. Uh, and and be genuinely interested in what they're doing or what they're saying and try to you know get to know them and then inject in there that hey I'm a photographer can I would you mind if I take a photo or two of you and yeah. I think you'll be surprised at the the people that would allow you to do that Steve you've you've done that I mean you you make a living oh, sure. doing that kind of thing Sure. No, absolutely. I mean, I think it's interesting that I think a lot of uh, people out there want to do more people pictures, but they're a little bit intimidated by it. You know, they may be just shy of temperament. But the reality is, look, it never gets easy, but it gets easier. And once you've done it a few times and once you've gotten a great shot because you've gotten out of that comfort zone and you've approached someone and it worked out, that will give you the incentive to do it again and again and again and you'll you'll meet great people you'll have great experiences sure sometimes people will reject you or whatever you take it personally i mean they don't know you i mean how can they well fred they know from reputation so you can <laughs> yeah. take it personally fred yeah but I'm... uh the twip listeners know and and the other thing i would say on the photo walk and this i borrow from bill durance who's uh, a great photographer and teacher and he always says wherever you take your picture Walk three feet closer because mm. people do tend to, uh, to um, you know, stay a little bit far back and, and get out of your comfort zone, move in close, and also bend or lie down or, you know, try some different angles because it makes things uh, more interesting often. Excellent. That's a great, great tip. All right. With that, that brings us to the end of this episode of This Week in Photography. Quickly, Steve, where can, uh, where can people find you if they're interested in learning more about your body parts? Uh, SteveSimonPhoto.com is my website. Um, but Twittering, I'm, I'm loving the Twitter. Uh, it's www.twitter.com slash Steve Simon. Excellent. And Mr. Ron Brinkman, where are you located online? You may also find me on Twitter most often. It's just uh, Ron Brinkman, R-O-N-B-R-I-N-K-M-A-N-N. Excellent. And if you're looking for me, Frederick Van Johnson, you can find me on my website, which is just frederickvan.com, or on Twitter, twitter.com slash frederickvan. And with that, that brings us to the end of the show, and it's time to take that lens cap off. <laughs> <laughs>